Thank you for joining us online. My name is John Coates and I'm the lead pastor here at Father's House. Today we're going to continue our series, Aftermath, with part three by our executive pastor, Dante Dowdy. Hello, and thank you for joining us online today. A special shout out to our Father's House online community. Today is part three of our series, Aftermath. In this series, we are discovering new ways to transform our lives by taking a look at the post-resurrection encounters of Jesus. In our first week, Pastor John covered Jesus' encounter with Mary and the group of women at the tomb. Last week, my beautiful wife, Sydney, showed us two followers of Jesus encountering him on the road to Emmaus. Today, we will be covering Jesus' first appearance to his disciples, minus Judas Iscariot and Thomas. So let's take a look at Luke 24, 33 through 48. And the scripture says, that same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of bread. Verse 36 says, while they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, why are you frightened? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet and see that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While in their joy, they were disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate in their presence. Verse 44 goes on to say, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So my question for us today is, have you ever lost hope? Have you ever lost all hope? I have. I've lost hope before, in fact, many times. One of the times that is rather fresh, a fresh experience for me is when I was diagnosed with kidney disease a year and a half ago. I was 27 and in the prime of my gym life, if I must say so myself. The day I was formally diagnosed, I remember wanting to just crawl into a hole, sit in a room with the lights off and hide from everything that was happening. It seemed like all my dreams felt more like an impossibility. One of the ways that I was in a serious, uh, one of the ways I was in a serious, committed relationship with Sydney, and I had already asked her dad for permission to marry her. And at this point, I was just awaiting the date to come. And when I learned of my diagnosis, one of my first dreams to take a hit was marriage. I thought I was damaged goods. No one wants to start a life with someone with hospital visits and progressively getting more sick. So I felt compelled to give her an out. One of the worst and most unexpected conversations I've ever planned on having and never had to have. But her answer to me just made me fall more in love with her. Now she didn't take the out, thank God, 
But when things you envision and dream of are unexpectedly cut short, that's a loss of hope. The writer of this gospel, Luke, was very familiar with losing hope. You see, he wrote this gospel around 70 AD to the third generation of Jesus followers. This was well after Jesus had ascended to heaven. Before his ascension, Jesus promised that he would return again. His followers assumed that it would be really, really soon. However, they waited and Jesus had not returned to deliver them from the hands of the Romans as they thought they would, as they thought that he would. At the same time, the Romans came to Jerusalem, the center of the Christian faith, and laid waste to it, bringing Jewish poverty and suffering, and the Romans even destroyed the temple. The third generation of Jesus followers had their dreams crushed, and they were beginning to lose focus, and they were beginning to lose hope. Can you relate? Have you ever lost hope when unexpected things around you seem to change the way you envision your life to be? Right now, a virus has caused a loss of over 200,000 lives and the suffering of over 3.19 million people around this world. While our way of life has changed, the way we dream for it to be has also changed. Parenting will no longer be the same. The state of our marriages and what we're used to will no longer be the same. Many of our jobs will never be the same. We are in a battle for hope. So can I relate to the third generation of Jesus followers struggle for hope who Luke is writing to? Yes, I can. And I believe we all can. So let's take a seat with Luke today and look at how Jesus's encounter with his disciples in Luke 24, 33 through 48 can encourage us in our fight for hope. So we're going to pick up on this story with Jesus's encounter with his disciples right where we left off last week. The two followers of Jesus, Cleopas and the unnamed companion who took the journey to Emmaus, have now returned to Jerusalem after their encounter. These two found the disciples, excluding Judas, who had already betrayed Jesus and left the group. And the parallel of John 20 indicates that Thomas was, wasn't present, but he will bear witness to his encounter in a later portion in this series. But they find them in this house, and they begin to share with them their experience. But we must set this scene correctly. The 10 disciples do not know much about how we have covered, about what we have covered in the last two weeks. These disciples dismiss Mary's claims of encountering Jesus because culturally women weren't considered reliable witnesses in the first century. And now for the first time, they are hearing Cleopas and the unnamed companions experience with Jesus. It is still the third day since Jesus' death, so all these accounts happened on the same day. These disciples built their hope on Jesus being Israel's redeemer. They envisioned that Jesus would end the Jewish deportation, that, the, that he would end the destruction of Jerusalem, and that he would allow them to rise in the ranks of society and politics. But then he died. Jesus' crucifixion destroyed all of these hopes. To the, to the disciples, it seemed as if all their hopes had died with Jesus. They began to think of him as just another prophet, that was killed instead of the Messiah. A parallel version to this story describes that the 10 disciples have been keeping a very low profile. In John 20, 19, it says, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of what the Jesus leaders would do to them if they found them. They knew them to be known associates with Jesus. They feared being discovered and suffering the same executionism. These disciples not only lost hope, but they also 
feared for their lives. Here we pick up the story in verse 36 with Cleopas and the unnamed companion explaining their encounter. Verse 36 says, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. If you're like me, my first inclination is to float past this verse because it's just another typical Bible greeting. However, these are the first words that Jesus is using to his entire group of disciples. He trained them, he walked with them, so most likely these first words are very intentional. If we look at the term used for peace here, we'll find that it translates in Greek to arane, maybe that's how we say that, but in Hebrew language, it also translates to shalom. A word study reveals that the English definitions of peace, like freedom from disturbance or tranquility, which come straight from Oxford Dictionary, are too simple and narrow. Scholars reveal that the most basic meaning of this Greek word for peace and this Hebrew word for peace, shalom, mean complete or to be whole. It refers to something that is complex with a lot of pieces that is in a state of wholeness. So shalom in reference to an individual should mean the overall wholeness of an individual and everything connected to them. It covers the totality of who an individual is. In the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, family units often spoke of shalom to show harmony in their family and for the well-being if a member was leaving. The major prophets spoke of shalom to discuss well-being and harmony in a community where righteousness and justice were upheld. When in reference to an individual, shalom means the inner wholeness and well-being of a person's soul. But it also means the wholeness as in that person's harmony within a community. And it also means abundance in their health. Everything related to an individual, all the complex pieces are whole in that word shalom. So now we find Jesus spoke shalom to his disciples, meaning may you be whole. This was not just a greeting to his disciples. It wasn't a, hey, what's up, fellas? Jesus is setting the disciples up for a discovery to be whole. In verse 37, we find the disciples startled and terrified. I mean, absolutely, they were taken by surprise. They legitimately feared being seen by Jewish leaders. So an unexpected presence causing high alert, expected. And I mean, after all, they locked the door, yet they found someone else in the room who was able to enter the room without a key. And they thought they saw a ghost. It does sound crazy. However, the disciples can audibly hear and see Jesus, but they vividly remembered and experienced his death. In first century, it actually wasn't that crazy of an idea as it is today to see a ghost. Roman Greco culture and literature dates back that ghosts were present in a common belief and there were many documented accounts. There was even recognition of different types of ghosts, as well as knowledge about what each type of ghost could do and not do. But there was a stigma that came with them. The stigma was that if a ghost appeared to you, they would wreak havoc and destruction, which also justifies why these disciples are scared out of their minds. Honestly, if I saw a ghost, <laughs> yeah, you don't want to know what I would do. Um, but Jesus' response to them in their fear was not rebuking, but a question of deep concern that the disciples' fear and doubt are getting the best of them. He doesn't take offense that they don't recall everything that he has stated to them across the years. Instead, he begins to break down their barriers to understand 
who he is. Jesus directly head-on addresses their concerns about him, about him being a ghost. He goes through all the necessary steps to tear down everything they knew to be true about ghosts, including what they could do, what their functionality, whether they could eat, all those things. In verse 39, he says, he lets them touch him. He lets them touch his physical body because their classification of ghosts do not have real bodies. And in verse 40, he shows them his hands and his feet where the nails went through so they can identify this is the same Jesus they eyewitness being crucified. By verse 41, the disciples are saying Jesus, but still cannot believe it. So he asked them for something to eat to show them even further that ghosts can't eat. Jesus is meeting the disciples where they are by removing and tearing down their barriers of unbelief. After addressing their more simple physical challenges of seeing him, he goes forward to tear down other barriers. But Jesus is showing us and he's doing a great job of tearing down barriers. He knows exactly what is hindering the disciples from receiving him and he finds a way to address it. Jesus thought it was essential to take time to let the disciples touch him and eat to address their barriers even in his limited time that he had here in his resurrection time on earth. He cares about what is blocking them from being fully persuaded of who he is, and he's capable of addressing, of addressing those things head on. And I would say he's able to do the same for us. After addressing the disciples' barriers, Jesus focuses on allowing them to see the truth. In verse 44, he reminds them of all scripture he taught them while he was with them, from the law of Moses to the prophets and the Psalms, which needed fulfillment. Jesus could have simply said to them, you haven't learned this by now, but he doesn't. Instead, he goes one step further. In verse 45 and 46, he says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He said to them, thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. I mean, at this point, Jesus already has their attention. He greets them with peace. He removes their physical barriers but they are still frightened of him. He needs to open their minds to his message. Now, there's much theological debate here with religious scholars about what opening their minds really means. And instead of going down this rabbit trail of a supernatural thing that could have possibly happened, we need to focus in on the facts. Luke, the author of this gospel, is a known historian and a stickler for facts. So this is what we know about their minds being opened. Jesus graciously offered the disciples the gift of understanding that all scriptures regarding the coming Messiah, who would redeem all of God's people, were fulfilled in Jesus' death and resurrection. And secondly, that his, their new understanding of the prophetic scriptures pointing to Jesus ignited the faith of the disciples to become fully persuaded that Jesus is, in fact, the risen Messiah. The scriptures took on new meaning when they're seen as being fulfilled by Jesus. Okay, now that we've underlined the facts, let's look at the narrative. Imagine that we are one of the disciples. Everyone pick a disciple. Just don't pick Judas. I'm gonna pick Bartholomew just because he doesn't get a lot of attention so I can be creative in my imagination. Jesus, the prophet we've been following for the last three years is betrayed by one of our own, arrested, then hung on a cross, and then he slowly drowned in his own blood. 
I didn't just hear it. I saw it happen. I saw him laid in his tomb. But a few minutes ago, while we were talking to some, someone who was convinced they saw Jesus, I heard this voice behind me, a voice I've recognized. I've never felt time stop like that in my life. I didn't believe it was possible. I couldn't have been hearing this voice again. I saw him die. As I turned around, I saw him. Now I can't breathe. I can't feel anything. His ghost is here. But something is different. He has the marks on his hands and on his feet from his torture. I saw them put the nails there. This can't be real. No. How can I feel them? How am I able to touch him? What? How can he eat? Ghosts can't eat. That means he's not a ghost. He's really here. And I've heard these scriptures times and times before. But wait, I can hear life in his voice. But I also hear the sound of suffering there. As he reads Psalm 22 to me, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear me. And in the night season, I am not silent. I see the suffering in his eyes. The scripture points to him. He is the resurrected Messiah. It is important that we know that the disciples did not just read this as we are. They experienced the resurrection, the resurrected Jesus. At this moment, Jesus changed the way they all would read scriptures for the rest of their lives. In Jewish culture, it was usual for the Torah to be read from the temple steps daily. They could regurgitate scripture like nobody else. But here, Jesus is offering that all scripture is to be read with him as the center. The approach to scripture must be that God desires to rule and save through Jesus, who is the risen Messiah. Jesus chose to appear to his disciples. He chose to give them this gift, this gift of grace of studying the scriptures with seeing him as the risen one. In persuading the disciples, it was their understanding that the scriptures are to be seen through Jesus that transforms their faith. We can take from the disciples' lesson here that there is a right way to read the scriptures. We must search for Jesus in every one of them. The oldest piece of scriptures to the newest ones. We must see the risen one who suffered betrayal and torture and death to accomplish God's masterful plan. He is the focal point of each scripture. This will transform our lives. Moving forward in verse 46, Jesus revealed to his disciples how the scriptures spoke of him as the Messiah. Verse 47 continues on to say that repentance and forgiveness of sins are to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning with Jerusalem. Jesus suffered torture and death to secure the repentance and forgiveness of sins. This is the first mention of repentance since early on in Luke. Repentance being the turning away from sin into God, looking at the risen Messiah who died for all people, repentance is being extended to everyone. 
now knowing that Jesus is offering the repentance and forgiveness of sins, he, the greeting that he did in the beginning makes a little more sense. Jesus began this encounter by offering his disciples shalom, wholeness. In fact, the underlying principle of shalom is that when someone brings it, is that one of the complex pieces that makes up a person's well-being is broken down, and it needs to be restored. When someone brings shalom, they make everything complete and whole about it. The relationship between humanity and God was fractured. The Old Testament and even the Gospels are full of stories of humanity trying to make the complex pieces work together but never quite measuring up. Humanity, we try to restore the relationship we broke in the first place. However, the ability to make us whole doesn't end up coming from humanity. It doesn't come from us. It comes from God. Jesus brought permanent restoration for this relationship. He has balanced our judgment for our actions with his death and sacrifice, providing a perfect balance, a perfect balance and harmony between us and God. Ephesians 2, 14 through 16 says it like this. For Christ himself has brought shalom, wholeness to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people in his own body on the cross. He broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from two groups together as one body. Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. Colossians 1, 19 through 20 says this, for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Jesus Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Jesus gave these disciples an opportunity to acknowledge their breakdown through repentance and offered them wholeness through his forgiveness for their sins. He desired to make their complex pieces whole so their soul and everything attached to them would be whole. This offer also stands for us today. Jesus is offering us shalom, peace for our entire being, for the totality of our lives, everything attached to us through belief in him as the resurrected Messiah. In John 14, 27, 14, 27 Jesus told his disciples this, Shalom I leave with you, my shalom I give to you, not as the world do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. We can understand this to mean wholeness I leave with you, my wholeness I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus was saying to his disciples here that they can have peace, a peace that is for their whole lives, the totality of it. They can be complete. He can provide it even amid their fears. Even though he couldn't stay with his disciples, he said he would leave this wholeness with them. It would be a gift. Well, this gift is not just for his followers back then. It's for his followers now. 
we can have the wholeness given by Jesus that is for our entire lives. He can provide it in our fears, and he wants to give us this gift. And once this gift is received, we do not have to succumb to letting ourselves to be troubled or afraid by the things that occur around us. The source of our peace, the source of our wholeness is Jesus. He provided wholeness by sacrificing himself as payment for our sins, allowing him to eternally and permanently forgive us. If you've never invited Jesus to make you whole, you can. All it takes is for you to believe that he is the risen Messiah who paid for all of our sins. Acknowledge that there is brokenness among your complex pieces and receive the forgiveness and the wholeness he provides. The moment you accept him is the moment you are made whole. And for all of us that have accepted this shalom, this wholeness from God, Jesus declares one more thing in verse 48 that we cannot forget. You are witnesses of these things. Jesus did not leave this at being made whole. He declares these followers who are made whole to be his witnesses. Their minds have been opened to how God's salvation plan sinners through him. They understand Jesus suffered and died as payment for our sins. They understand he has risen from the dead as only the Messiah could. And they now understand that he desires people to turn from their sin into him instead. Now they are capable of sharing. And this is not only applied to the disciples back then. This applies to us now. To all who recognize Jesus as the Messiah and who accept his forgiveness for sins, we are witnesses. It wasn't just these disciples who had an encounter with Jesus. If we take a look at Luke, he has written this gospel for generations and generations of people after him to become followers of Jesus, to become whole and to restore their hope. He understood what it meant to be called a witness. As for you and I, we may not have experienced the physical sight of Jesus's resurrection from the dead, But to all of us that believe in Jesus as the Messiah, we have experienced the most important part. We've experienced the revealing of the resurrected Jesus through the scriptures, making us fully persuaded. Therefore, we are declared as as witnesses. We are God's chosen method for everyone on this earth to know that Jesus wants to make each and every one of us whole. It doesn't matter how much we or if we, it doesn't matter how much we know, or if we have just accepted Jesus today, we now have something to share to others. As a witness, our assignment is to create peace. We are to give wholeness where wholeness does not exist. Whether it is in our own lives, in our relationships, or in this entire world, Jesus makes our complex pieces work in perfect harmony. And he can do the same for all those around us. He can do the same for our communities communities that we are a part of. He can do the same for this entire world. We have wholeness to give. So it it is our assignment to give as we have been given. And I know it's hard to be motivated sometimes, but Revelations 12, 10 through 11 says this. It has come at last. The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God 
in the authority of his Christ, Jesus. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters have been thrown down to earth, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. And they have defeated him by the blood of the lamb, Jesus, and by their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. The more we share our Jesus story, the more we triumph over the chaos around us because we are encouraged. We develop hope every time we share. That's the momentum we see in the early church. They kept sharing about Jesus' triumph over death and how it impacted their life. I benefit as much as everyone else around me from sharing the story of Jesus and how he's changed my life because I, I find hope every single time. I find encouragement every single time I share. We must be reminded that we experience God's wholeness, his harmony, and his peace within our lives every time we share his story and his work in our lives. We will be encouraged to fight another day despite the issues that may arise. And even now, we can be encouraged that God desires wholeness for us, for our family, for our friends, and for our community. God, he wants wholeness for you. So let's pray. Father, we pray that you would drop this down deep inside of us, Lord, that you have come to bring us shalom. That where we are broken, God, you bring perfect wholeness. You bring perfect harmony with everything we're involved in and everyone around us. Lord, we believe in declaring that you are the Messiah, that you have given us perfect peace, perfect peace to weather anything that's in or around us. So help us accept that wholeness today, Jesus but also help us to know that the wholeness does not just remain with us, that it is to be shared with everyone around us. You gave us wholeness to create wholeness in every place that we come in contact with. Lord, our wholeness is not just for us. It's for our brothers and our sisters. It's for our children. It's for our spouses. It's for our community. You made us to be together as one in harmony. And we look to you and how to live in that perfect harmony. So teach us how to be witnesses. Encourage us to share and to be motivated to never forget the story of Jesus' death and resurrection and how you changed our entire lives by it. We thank you, God, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. We love you, and may the shalom of God be with you. Hey, thanks so much again for joining us here online. We hope that this message and the worship encouraged you, especially during this unprecedented time. I also want to say thank you so much to all those that have taken the time to give 
to help us express the love of Jesus to our community. If you would like to give, you can do so by going to our website or through our app. I want to encourage everyone to follow us on social media as we continue to give updates on things that will be going on over the next month. Also, subscribe, like our YouTube page, and turn on the notifications so you can know what's going on here at Father's House. Thanks again. We love you. Have an amazing week.